I'm Adam White on behalf of the Scalia Law School's Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. It's my pleasure to welcome you to a discussion of the National Environmental Policy Act. Before I introduce the event, I'd like to introduce Gary Bridgens, president of the law school's Society of Environmental and Energy Law, to say a few words of welcome on behalf of the society, which is co-sponsoring this event. Gary? Thank you, Professor White. Uh, I'm Gary Bridgens, president of the newly formed Society for Environmental and Energy Law at the Scalia Law School. Our mission is to provide Scalia Law students with networking and programming opportunities in environmental law, as well as all of the sectors and industries that most substantially affect the environment, including infrastructure, transportation, um, siting, and land use. Uh, so I should make a, a plug that if you're interested in joining the Society for Environmental and Energy Law, please follow us on Facebook and send us a message. We're thrilled to be hosting this webinar with the Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. And I'm particularly glad that our first event is covering this topic, the National Environmental Policy Act. Uh, NEPA is a foundational law as we, uh, in, has changed environmental law as we understand it today and is referred to by many as the Magna Carta of federal environmental law. Uh, accordingly, here today are some of our country's leading experts on this issue to discuss NEPA and how the next generation of uh, lawyers uh, should view this environmental law. Thank you sincerely to the Gray Center for leading this charge in organizing the event and for giving us all the opportunity to learn more about this critical environmental statute. Uh, with that, I'll pass it back to you, Professor White, to introduce NEPA and our panelists. Great. Thanks, Gary. And like I said, I'm so glad that we're able to do this with, uh, with your society. On January 1st, 1970, President Nixon signed NEPA into law, requiring federal agencies to consider the environmental impacts of their own actions and the impacts of private sector actions that require federal approval. NEPA doesn't set substantive standards for approving or prohibiting activities, but it does require agencies to consider the impacts of those activities. In the first major case applying NEPA, the D.C. Circuit urged that, quote, Congress did not intend the act to be a paper tiger. Indeed, the requirement of environmental consideration to the fullest extent possible sets a high standard for the agencies, a standard which must rigorously be enforced by the reviewing courts, end quote. But applying that standard has often proved difficult. It's required agencies to think broadly of the reasonably foreseeable impacts, environmental impacts of a project, and the hypothetical impacts of a project's hypothetical alternatives. It's hard often to see where precisely to draw lines between foreseeable and unforeseeable consequences, between substantial and unsubstantial ones. And further complications are raised by the court's review of an agency's analysis at the behest of those who seek to block an agency from taking action at all. With that in mind, we thought this would be a good moment to take stock of NEPA's past, present, and future and to do that, we're lucky to be joined by our guests today. I'll introduce them in a moment. After their opening thoughts and some discussion, we'll hear from you, the audience, too. If you have a question, please submit it in Zoom's Q&A interface. We'll get to as many questions as we can before the end of the hour. And now, our guests. Don Elliott is a distinguished adjunct professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School, a longtime professor of law at the Yale Law School, and co-chair of Covington and Burling's Environmental Law Practice previously served as the EPA's Assistant Administrator and General Counsel, and for 30 years he's been a leading voice and mind on matters of environmental regulation. Don, welcome. Thank you. And Michael Gerard is the Andrew Sabin Professor of Professorial Practice at the Columbia Law School, where he is the founding director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law, an incredibly important uh, institute that has really led the way in, in analyzing uh, the intersection of law and climate change. He previously practiced law for many years at Arnold and Porter, where he presided over the firm's New York office, where he remains senior counsel. His most recent book is Legal Pathways to Deep Decarbonization in the United States. It's co-edited with John Dernbach. Given the many ways in which climate change has come to be involved in NEPA analysis, we're so lucky to be joined by him today. Mike, welcome. Thank you. Let's begin with Don. Don, could you please give us an overview of what NEPA was intended to do and some of the challenges that it's posed to modern administration? Certainly. Thanks. Thanks very much, Adam. And thanks to you and the Gray Center for giving me this opportunity. Uh, particularly pleasure to serve with uh, or to be to be participating with uh, with Mike Gerard, who's clearly one of the leaders in our in our field. 
it's also a great pleasure to, to be doing something through the Gray Center. I had the privilege of serving with Boyd and Gray uh, in, uh, in the government, and he was a, a true environmentalist who was instrumental in, in getting passage of the 1990 Clean Air Act and particularly the acid rain trading provisions of that. So NEPA is the National Environmental Policy Act, and the word policy is particularly important. It's sometimes uh, mistakenly called the National Environmental Protection Act, and it, that's really not the case. It's a, it's a policy uh, act. It was the brainchild of Senator Henry Jackson, who at the time was, was running to be the Democratic nominee against Richard Nixon in 1972, and one of his competitors, Senator Muskie, who was responsible for drafting some of the other environmental statutes like the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, uh, dismissed NEPA by saying it's not a statute, it's an essay. Um, and uh, large portions of NEPA do read like an essay. They are policy statements. It is what we would call today a series of super mandates that attempted to uh, make environmental protection part of the mission of all agencies and departments of the federal government. And that part of NEPA has largely been forgotten or unsuccessful because there really wasn't any um, uh, enforcement mechanism. I can give some examples in the question and answer period if you're interested. But instead, a relatively obscure provision uh, of the statute for environmental impact statements to accompany recommendations for, quote, major federal actions significantly affecting the quality of the human environment and to identify uh, effects and, uh, alter and reasonable alternatives has become really a, the mainstay of, of NEPA. And when we think of NEPA today, we think of the environmental impact statement requirement. Um, that's an idea that was uh, proposed by an academic, Linton Caldwell, a political scientist at Indiana University, but it's been picked up and really elaborated by the uh, by the courts. So NEPA is a statute uh, where a lot of the content has been supplied by the courts and also interpretations by the Council on Environmental Quality. In some sense, that's ironic because unlike the other environmental statutes that were passed at that time, uh, there's no specific section in NEPA that provides for judicial review. And I interviewed one of the uh, drafters, one of Muskie, I'm sorry, one of uh, uh, Jackson's staffers who said that that was not an oversight, that they hoped it would have judicial review, uh, but um, they did not include a specific provision because they thought it would not have passed if they'd provided for judicial review. But nonetheless, a great deal of uh, NEPA law has been uh, developed by the courts. Uh, today, uh, environmental impact statements are often over a thousand pages plus appendices, and there is some question as to how, how useful those are as documents for the decision makers, but it certainly does result in the generation of huge amounts of environmental uh, information and is often the, the generation of such information is the basis for, for lawsuits and, 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 and policy decisions. The U.S. Supreme Court has interpreted uh, NEPA, the federal version of NEPA, as being a largely procedural statute rather than having a substantive reach, uh, unlike some of the uh, state uh, parallels, such as California, where the agency is actually required to choose the most environmentally uh, beneficial or at least harmful uh, alternative. Um, but that's not true at the federal level. I think NEPA has been a great success as measured by in a number of different ways. Uh, one of them is it's been copied by over 200 countries worldwide and, and numerous states. Um, and in addition, the legal device which it invented, impact statements, has been used in a number of other contexts. Um, so I, I think it was a great success, particularly with, re with regard to emerging environmental issues uh, where we don't yet know enough to uh, develop a, uh, a particular statute like the Clean Air Act or Clean Water Act. In my opinion, it has prevented untold environmental uh, disasters. And I could give some examples, uh, again, in the question period if you're interested. But more importantly than that, or at least as important as that, is it creates incentives to improve proposals and minimize the effects of projects 
in advance in order to avoid having to do an environmental impact statement. So unlike some of our environmental statutes, I think it largely does uh, a very good job of, of creating uh, uh, good incentives. Nonetheless, when I think of NEPA, uh, I think of a line by Coleridge from 1817, where he said, every reform, however necessary, will by weak minds be carried to excess that will itself need reforming. So I think it's a very good idea and it's been a very successful statute, um, but I do agree um, with Coleridge that over time, uh, it's come to a point where, where some reforms are necessary. And a lot of the uh, case for reform of NEPA was stated uh, in, a, in a, a very interesting uh, report called Two Years, Not 10 Years by the nonpartisan NGO Common Good. And you can read a copy of that if you go to Common Good's website, which is www.cgood.org. I probably should disclose that um, myself and a number of other Covington attorneys did some pro bono work uh, for uh, Common Good in connection with, uh, with that report. But the, the basic argument of uh, Common Good and, and the two years, not 10 years report was that NEPA had become a means for trying to stop things rather than improving the environmental profile, particularly with regard to uh, infrastructure uh, developments. So in other words, people who opposed a project for grounds that really had nothing to do with environment could also sue under NEPA trying to uh, enjoin the uh, uh, project. Now, the Supreme Court has tried to tighten up on that a little bit by saying in, in a, a couple of recent cases that you don't automatically get an injunction against the project going forward simply because you show there have been uh, failures to consider some aspect. But nonetheless, I haven't really seen those Supreme Court decisions uh, change the practices in the lower courts that much. Uh, one of the points that um, Common Good makes in that report that a six-year delay in a project typically doubles the cost of the project and often causes it to be uh, abandoned. So the, the criticism of NEPA is that it has become, at least for some projects, a way of paralysis by analysis. Uh, the Common Good report I thought was particularly strong because it, it compared our process under, under NEPA, which was the original one, with uh, processes in Canada and Germany, which have, have copied NEPA, but had the benefit of uh, uh, our experience. And, and in some ways, uh, many people think do it better than we do. In those countries, even major projects uh, see the environmental uh, analysis completed within, within two years. And one of the major uh, differences is that Canada and Germany and a number of other countries set deadlines for the environmental uh, impact statements and, and the analysis process. That creates an incentive to focus on the major issues as opposed to under NEPA, where in the words of Philip Howard, the founder and president of Common Good, the incentive is to try to convince a court uh, that uh, a pebble has been left unturned, that some, but that some aspect of environmental, uh, potential environmental effects or alternatives was not considered so you can get an injunction to uh, a delay or um, uh, of the project for further study. Now, in, in fairness, about 90% of projects uh, do not require an environmental impact statement. Instead, they go through a much more abbreviated process called an environmental assessment or an EA. And that's a, a shorter administrative study trying to determine whether or not there is a significant impact uh, because remember, the statute only requires an environmental impact statement if there is a significant impact on the quality of the human environment. So an EA often le leads to what's called a FINESI, a finding of no significant impact. Um, this process creates a very uh, useful incentive to eliminate potential significant effects uh, in a project if it can be done. Uh, in order to avoid having to go through the environmental impact statement process with the, the delays and costs that it creates. But it also, uh, the, the extent of environmental impact statements also creates uh, uh, a, I think, pernicious incentive to create lots of exemptions. So there are numerous statutes, certainly over 30, 
in which Congress has exempted something that it really wants to get done from having to go through the, the NEPA process. And there's also a process called categorical exemptions where agencies by, by rule exempt a category of action from having to go through NEPA by making a, a finding that they typically do not result in uh, significant effects on the environment. Well, the Trump administration uh, has been going through a process to, quote, update and modernize the rules implementing NEPA and maintaining that this is the first comprehensive rewrite of the uh, rules by the Council on Environmental Quality since 1978. There have been numerous changes to the Council on Environmental Quality's rules, but I, I think they may be right that this is the first time that there is a, a comprehensive uh, uh, rewrite. Uh, the Trump proposals incorporate many of the common good recommendations, in, including presumptive deadlines and presumptive page limits, uh, but there are a number of other um, uh, uh, aspects to them. Uh, some of them that common good opposes, including uh, requirements or, or, or proposals to limit discussion of cumulative and indirect uh, impacts, and I'm sure that perhaps we'll discuss that with Mike Gerard as the as the a webinar goes forward. The um, the full text of the final rule is in the July 16, 2020 Federal Register, and there's a, a short uh, blog post that we did at Covington that summarizes the main provisions, um, and I think that's been sent around by by chat. So if you're interested in seeing what's uh, what's in the proposals, there's a, there's a short summary of them there. Um, I think the most important proposals are those that set presumptive deadlines and page limits on environmental impact statements. Um, there is, I think, a substantial question as to uh, the authority uh, to, to make those kinds of uh, changes by, by, by rule. Um, and, uh, and a number of the national environmental groups have uh, uh, accused the Trump administration of uh, attempting to gut NEPA through these changes and certainly whether or not uh, any of these particular proposals are, are legal will eventually be decided by the courts. So that's my overview of uh, NEPA past, present, and future. Thank you. Well, thank you, Don. Uh, in addition to the piece that we just put in the chat, the, the blog post that you co-authored with your colleagues at Covington, we'll also be including in the chat in just a moment uh, a, a report from Mike's own center, the, the Center on Climate Change. Mike, can you give us your thoughts on on uh, on NEPA and, in particular, uh, the ways in which the the NEPA analysis has come to involve uh, climate impacts of projects? Yes, Adam. Thanks very much for having me, and Don. Thanks for that very interesting discussion. So, I'd like to concentrate on the role that I think NEPA should play uh, in the future. The world of the future will be a lot different from the world of the past, or even the world of today. Today, we're at about one degree centigrade above pre-industrial conditions, and we are already seeing unprecedented wildfires and heat waves and hurricanes and inland precipitation. Uh, the world is going to keep on getting warmer until we reach, on a global basis, net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, for quite a while, uh, uh, it was assumed that the maximum tolerable increase in global average temperatures was 2 degrees Celsius, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial conditions, but a study mandated by the Paris Agreement done by the IPCC two years ago showed that two, two degrees is really horrible, and we need to try to keep to 1.5 degrees. But the Paris pledges, the, country, the, the pledges that every country in the world came up with in Paris in 2015, would take us to a world over three degrees, and most countries are not even meeting their pledges. So it's going to get a lot warmer, and the uh, uh, impacts are going to get much more serious uh, to, uh, as we approach the end of the century. Now, much of the infrastructure that we build today will still be around at the end of the century. And so I think that one central role of NEPA going forward uh, should be to envision the kind of world that will exist at the end of the useful life of these projects, not just today, and then to ask, can these Will these projects be able to withstand those anticipated climatic conditions? If they can't, then the question is, uh, is that an acceptable loss? Uh, is it okay if we lose the bridge or whatever it is? Or, or are there ways to harden it to make it more resilient? 
uh, and, and does that have to be now done now? Can that be done some decades from now when we have a clearer sense? We're clearly going to have to look at an array of scenarios because there's no certainty about just how bad things will get, which is mostly a function of how high greenhouse gas emissions will be. Uh, but what I would suggest is we should look at a reasonable worst case scenario and, and ask these questions. Can the project uh, tolerate that and, and, and so forth? Um, a, a classic case is airport runways. I'm still seeing NEPA documents that, uh, that say that building an airport runway in a particular location is fine because it's not within the theme of 100 year flood zone. Well, that's wholly inadequate because the FEMA flood maps are entirely backward looking. They do not at all reflect future sea level rise. Congress in 2012 told FEMA to come up with procedures to reflect future sea level rise. They had a technical advisory committee which came out with a report in 2015 which, on how to do that, which has mostly been sitting on the shelf. Uh, so, so leaving it at, uh, at the FEMA flood maps does no good. And there are many other examples like that where we should um, really be looking forward to the kinds of uh, environmental uh, uh, conditions that will happen in the future. I think one good exemplar of how to do that was a report released last December by Con Edison, the New York electric utility. They did a climate change vulnerability study. Uh, they hired outside climate scientists and came up with geographically very specific projections about heat and flooding and other impacts. And are, they're now doing a uh, uh, coming up with the implementation plan to prepare for those impacts. That wasn't in the NEPA context. It was in the context of a public utility commission proceeding that I was involved in, but I think it's a good example of how it could be done. So, so that's one of the essential roles for uh, NEPA going forward. Uh, the other one that I would like to mention is that we need to be uh, looking at minimizing the greenhouse gas impacts of the projects we built. We know that the principal thing humanity can do to lower the, the uh, climate change is to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, which is mostly a matter of moving away from fossil fuels. So environmental analyses under NEPA, I think, should look seriously at, is this project as energy efficient as, as at all possible? Should also look at, it, is it as water efficient, since many of these will be in areas where there is water uh, scarcity? Should also look at what are the sources of energy for the project? Can the project generate its own energy through distributed generation? Can it acquire it from clean sources? Uh, um, uh, and and this analysis of the energy impact should be the full life cycle of the project, but from the extraction and fabrication of the materials to the construction, to the operation, to the decommissioning. So at every stage, uh, that should be uh, examined. The overall uh, objective would be to try to figure out how to minimize the life cycle greenhouse gas um, footprint of all of these activities. Uh, so we need to be doing everything possible to minimize the amount of climate change that is happening and to cope with the climate change that is going to happen despite our efforts. And I think that is a central and very important and very feasible role for NEPA going forward. Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, Don, Mike, I've got a few questions of my own, some of which we discussed beforehand. But before we get to those, I'd, I'd love to hear each of your responses or, or sort of any reactions to what's been said so far. Don, do you have any thoughts on, on, on what Mike was just discussing? I, I'm in very substantial agreement with, uh, with, with Mike on that. Um, I, I would just add that um, w one of the major problems under, under NEPA uh, is that what will be a substantial impact that needs to be considered is not always clear in, in, in advance. It's not always clear ex post, as we lawyers say. And the Obama administration, uh, CEQ, I thought did something very useful by, by specifying what, what types of climate change impacts needed to be uh, assessed. Um, unfortunately, it's difficult for uh, an administrative agency or, or CEQ, the Council on Environmental Quality, to specify what does not need to be considered. That, that's something that typically is decided by, uh, by, by litigation. But it's, it's more useful if, uh, if, if you have a, a, a clear understanding of what should, needs to be decided. And 
Um, I'm in general agreement with uh, with Mike as to the the issues that we ought to be considering as we uh, plan infrastructure for the future in in light of climate change. And I'm in general agreement with Don. Um, I think that uh, a key word that he used is presumptive. Uh, I'm fine with presumptive time limits and presumptive page limitations in recognition that there are sometimes it takes more time to do the analysis and it takes more pages to do the analysis. And and what a page limit really does is it just shoves the discussion to the appendices. Uh, I, I'm especially in agreement with Don about uh, taking issue with what CEQ has done to try to eliminate cumulative impact assessment. I think cumulative impact assessment is really extremely important that, that um, if you refuse to conduct cumulative impact assessment, you are conducting ostrich analysis. You're putting your head in the sand. You're not looking at the real impact that this project and other projects could have. Sure, there are projects that by themselves don't have much impact. Uh, but if you add them up, it adds up to, you know, Everett Dirksen's old line, a million here, a million there, you got real money. Uh, a little impact here, a little impact there, you have a, a catastrophe. And so I think that these things really have to be looked at very, very closely. Uh, one thing I also have to say is, although it is true that litigation is often used to challenge EISs and to try to stop projects, and in an earlier life, I did that kind of thing for a living, I think that often um, that, as Don says, it has, has stopped terrible projects, and the the possibility of it is what keeps EIS writers honest. It, it uh, makes sure that they know that there may be the sort of litigation hanging over their head. Now, it sometimes goes too far, and there's always the concern that the occasional judge will throw out an EIS because of what seems to be a really minor omission, and the dynamic that that sets up is... Um, EISs get longer and longer and longer because the last thing you want to do is write an EIS that forgot the little thing that uh, that got the judge's attention is the reason they they threw it out. So that's one of the tensions we have. You raised the issue of cumulative impacts, uh, Mike. Would you maybe describe for the audience in a little bit a little bit more just in terms of background what cumulative impacts are? And I'd be curious for both of your thoughts uh, in addition to that issue, the upstream and downstream issues especially with climate change, right? When a new natural gas pipeline is being built, uh, there's considerations of the greenhouse gas emissions and the climate impacts from the activities that bring the natural gas out of the ground. And then at the other end of the pipeline, the environmental impacts of, of greenhouse gas emissions from however that natural gas is being used and whether it's going into manufacturing or being used for fuel and so on. How should the NEPA process, you know, bring together the issues that need to be considered? And where do you put the fence line around these issues? Mike, you, I'll let's start with you. Well, first on the cumulative impact side, you might have a, um, a, a residential development in an area that's a, a drinking water supply. And a particular project and its septic field may not have much impact. But if you put a lot of projects there, it can destroy the drinking water supply. And, and so different places where we have NEPA, we have state equivalents, some places will, some places won't look at all those other uh, uh, projects, partly depending on whether they came from the same applicant. But if you don't look at what those projects could add up to, you're really missing the most important potential impact of the project. With respect to upstream and downstream, so there's been a lot of litigation that when FERC is approving a natural gas pipeline, for example, does it look only at the impacts of the pipeline itself, the, the trench it digs and the possibility of leakage from the pipeline? Or do you also look at the purpose of the pipeline is to carry gas to a power plant at the other end, which is going to burn it and generate a lot of greenhouse gas emissions? And so the uh, the D.C. Circuit has ruled that you do have to consider that in an EIS for a pipeline. The current FERC is not so sure about that. But I think that if what you're really trying to do is understand what is the impact of the project, the downstream impact is important to consider. Upstream as well, if, if the building the pipeline uh, allows the opening up of a new natural gas field at the, at the upward end, uh, then I think that is also an impact of the pipeline. It ought to be looked at, which is not to say that you have to do a full EIS scale analysis of uh, uh, upstream and downstream. Uh, but you, you do 
you should look at what are the most important impacts that are really enabled by the pipeline in the middle. And Don, what do you think? Just even if we look beyond the issue of climate change, these perennial questions about how far to take the analysis, where, you know, looking upstream and downstream sort of metaphorically, we'll say, on what precedes a project and what might result from a project. How can the agencies, the courts and others um, put this together in a coherent framework that doesn't just become sort of unbounded speculation? Well, I think I'll, I'll largely pass on that for two reasons. First, I think this is really a fact-specific question. I think it's very hard to address this in the, uh, in, you know, in the in the abstract. Uh, and also, I, I, we we may have some clients at Covington that have uh, that have views on that, and so I I don't want to comment on 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 that in particular. Um, I will say that I think one of the more controversial aspects of the um, uh, proposed uh, uh, or actually now the final Trump rule that is going to be the subject of litigation bears on exactly those questions as to whether or not to consider the indirect effects. And I think this is very likely a, an issue that will eventually go to the go to the Supreme Court. Well, Don, then maybe I'll ask you a, a different question, one that we discussed a little bit beforehand, which is this question of judicial review. Maybe you could expand a little bit on your view of the right so what's the right model of judicial review under the NEPA framework? What's the job of the court in making sure that NEPA is complied with without running the risk of, of turning it into a exercise in, in, in complete Monday morning quarterbacking? Yeah, well, I think that's a really good point. Um, one, one of the ironies is that uh, when, uh, when, when, when the statute was originally passed, it, it did not specifically... Uh, provide for uh, judicial review, and and seven years after the statute was passed in the 1977 Clean Air Act amendments, uh, Congress actually provided a, a a process for expert review of draft environmental impact statements within the executive branch in Section 309 of the Clean Air Act. So by by EPA. So there's an office at EPA of, of experts who really do nothing but review and comment uh, inside the executive branch on draft environmental impact statements. And in general, they're, they're very good and they're certainly very credible with other agencies. So I have often wondered whether or not if that process for expert review within the executive branch had existed uh, in, in 1970 when the statute went into effect, whether or not the courts would have been as active in reviewing environmental impact statements. There are numerous provisions uh, subsequently for review of different proposals within the executive branch, which are not subject to judicial review. So I think that that is at least uh, an, an interesting question. We'll, you know, we'll never know because it's a, it's a, it's a what if or hypothetical uh, question. The other thing that I think is important um, about uh, the, the, the review process is to have a clear requirement for exhaustion of administrative remedies. Uh, the courts have sometimes, there, there is what's called a scoping process under, under NEPA, where agencies go out for essentially notice and comment on what they propose to uh, consider in an environmental impact statement. And they take they take comments from interested parties. In in many instances, the courts have been willing to consider issues that are raised, you know, three or four years later after the environmental impact statement was was done, even though they were not raised by the by the litigants in the initial scoping process. And that's really a, a result of an anomaly in the sense that it was initially unclear. Uh, whether or not review of environmental impact statements took place under the Administrative Procedure Act, which, of course, incorporates a, an exhaustion of administrative remedies uh, concept, um, or whether or not NEPA as a freestanding statute was the uh, basis for uh, judicial review. It's now clear under subsequent Supreme Court cases that it's, it's review under the Administrative Procedure Act. Um, and I think one of the things that's... that's uh, uh, very positive about the uh, proposals under the uh, Trump administration 
um, is to be clear that there is an exhaustion of administrative remedies requirement that in order to be able to to sue in court uh, when when the environmental impact statement is is being designed, uh, the the potential objector has to come forward with their uh, concerns rather than uh, sandbag the agency by by keeping them in reserve and only bringing them out in, in litigation. So I think that will do a lot to try to uh, uh, speed up the process. In in general, m- my experience is, and I've represented, as Mike has, I've represented a number of uh, uh, proposals where which went through the environmental impact statement uh, process. In general, if something is raised early on, uh, there's usually very little reason for uh, the, the proponent of a project not to consider it. So I think exhaustion of administrative remedies is a very positive uh, doctrine, and I, I'm glad to see that it it may be uh, it may be uh, reinforced. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. It provided that the impact was you know foreseeable at the time, of, you know, before the end of the comment deadline. Obviously, some of these happen later, but I have to say I think that uh, courts are more differential to EISs than they often get credit for. It's rare that we see a court find that uh, an EIS is uh, inadequate because it used the wrong model or something like that. Courts rarely get involved in the technical minutia. It's, it's more often that a, an issue was completely ignored. Uh, often a paragraph or two is enough, uh, but but some uh, EISs leave that out either because the, a private applicant or some politician said, don't mention this. Uh, and that, that really gets them into trouble. But if they uh, if if they talk about even briefly the things they need to talk about, and if they follow the right procedures, if they are supposed to have a hearing, they have to have a hearing, and they have to give notice and so forth. Uh, but it, it's uh, I've seen uh, little—I wouldn't say zero—but little micromanagement by the courts in the in the content of the ISs. I agree with that generally. I think your typical uh, litigation is over uh, an environmental uh, assessment. Uh, or leaving an issue out and the claim that it needs to be discussed, and those are those are powerful arguments to a court because it doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily understand all the issues, but um, it can uh, it can it it can say you know look this isn't really discussed and and it uh, and and it, and it should be. I think the Supreme Court has tried to say in deciding whether or not to uh, allow. Um, uh, projects to be enjoined, uh, the courts have to consider the, the public interest and weigh the, weigh the equities and can't automatically say, as, as some courts had in the past, um, that any violation of NEPA automatically need, leads to an injunction against the project going forward. I'll ask just one more question before we go to audience questions. But first, let me just remind the audience, uh, if they would like to submit questions, and we already have a few in the queue, use the Q&A function in the Zoom uh, platform, and I'll read as many questions as we can get to before the end of the hour. But first, just one last question of my own. Mike, as you're walking through some of the ways in which project applicants can sort of take uh, preemptive measures to minimize the climate impacts or other environmental impacts of a project, or the ways in which NEPA sort of forces that by the end of the process. It occurred to me in thinking that many of the things that might be the subject that might be the subject of that could be also the subject of substantive federal and state uh, statutes on energy efficiency or on energy, uh, environmental impacts and so on. And it, it made me think you know, we have a procedural statute or maybe procedural statutes at the federal and state level that are driving these uh, these reforms and in favor of a cleaner environment. Um, does that make the other statutes redundant? Um, should we focus more on substantive statutes and less on the procedural statute? How should we think of NEPA sort of in relation to the other substantive energy and environmental laws? I know that the, the classic line is NEPA is not a substantive decision standard, unlike the other statutes, but how do you think NEPA should best operate in the context of those statutes? I think NEPA informs the decisions about whether the substantive statutes are being complied with, mm-hmm. and it can also fill in some some gaps in legislation. Remember that 
Congress has not passed a major environmental law in 30 years. 1990 was the last time uh, Congress passed a major new environmental law. They, they revised TSCA a few years ago, but, but in terms of new laws, it's been 30 years. So we don't have a federal law on climate change. We don't have a federal law on plastics in the ocean. We don't have a federal law on many of the issues that we now know uh, are enormously consequential issues. Uh, but NEPA can at least make people disclose what the impacts are and, and think about them before uh, making the final decision. So I think it plays a, a very important role, both in implementing the statutes we have and in thinking about all of these other uh, important issues, which are so far um, uh, largely ignored by the existing statutory structure. In terms of making agencies think, uh, I keep looking over my shoulder at my shelf here trying to see the name of the author of the book. There's a wonderful book from about 30 years ago about NEPA called Making Bureaucracies Think, and it really does spell that out. I'd encourage that book. To, I'd, I'd uh, recommend that book to anybody who wants to learn more about these issues. Yeah, Don, focuses you, on the Corps of Engineers, as I recall. Yeah. Um, Don, what, what do you think about this, NEPA in conjunction with the, the substantive statutes? Well, I, I think that uh, NEPA is in, in many ways uh, a, a statute that is most useful in identifying emerging environmental problems where we, where we don't, already have a, uh, don't already have a statute. And that's one of the justifications for what I consider uh, an anomaly, and that is one of the very few agencies that is exempt from having to go through a NEPA analysis is the Environmental Protection Agency, which has a statutory uh, uh, exemption. So I think the function of NEPA and substantive environmental statutes like the uh, Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act or, or CERCLA are, are largely different. Yeah, and let me just say, I agree that it is anomalous that EPA has been found by the courts to be mostly exempt from uh, NEPA under the, the state NEPA, that's not always the case. In my state, New York, under the State Environmental Quality Review Act, the state environmental department is not exempt. So it has to do EISs, and those are often very important. They really do reveal a lot of environmental impacts, and it's a good thing that it's not exempt. Well, let's go to audience questions now. We have a few in the queue, and I'm going to start with Kevin Beck. Kevin's, Kevin writes, I'm curious what the professors think of the criticism that NEPA considers the climate risks of building a new project, but ignores the climate risks of not building the project. For example, holding up a modern pipeline may keep an older, less safe pipeline in use for many years. Thank you. I would just add, of course, that's, a, that's an, an issue familiar under, say, the Clean Air Act, where, where sometimes there's a deterrent to building uh, or, or updating infrastructure because we're of the review process it might entail. Uh, I, think it, I, I think it'd be entirely fair to look at, at the, at that, you know, in, in, a, in an EIS, you look at the no action alternatives, what alternative, what if you don't do it? Uh, I think that's entirely fair. It's sometimes done. It probably ought to be uh, done more, uh, but that would be a part of a full analysis. What happens if you don't do the project? Yeah, I, I agree with uh, with Mike on that. Mike and I don't always agree. It's not always a love fest between the two of us, but I agree on, on that point. Um, and we do look at it uh, automatically in, in some sense by looking at the no action alternative of what the consequences are. I think it's important to remember um, that uh, NEPA is a statute that requires analysis, at least at the federal level. It does not mandate any particular uh, result. Um, there was some discussion of creating an exemption um, from from NEPA um, for projects that had uh, net environmental benefit. So if you could if you could say this project has net environmental benefit that it's it's better than the existing, that would have um, that would have ended the uh, the process. And, and that was, I think, wisely something that was decided even that the Trump administration didn't want to go there because um, NEPA often results in, in my experience, in improving projects as they, as they go along. In other words, in order to uh, settle a NEPA case, uh, oftentimes uh, issues that have been identified in the, um, in the environmental impact statement process 
will result in in changes to the process uh, as to end the uh, opposition by by agreement. So it's not just the go or no go decision. It's also a question of how do you design the project to minimize environmental effects. I think that raises a very important dilemma that we're facing, that there are some projects we really need a lot more of that are inhibited by the NEPA process, the classic example being solar and wind facilities. And I, I talk about some of that in the article that's been sent around in the chat, legal pathways for a massive increase in utility-scale renewable generation capacity. But, but there I also talk about some methods to try to speed up the process through regional programmatic environmental impact statements uh, coupled with uh, uh, regional habitat conservation reviews that could expedite the process under the Endangered Species Act. Uh, so NEPA and the Endangered Species Act carry out very important functions, but there are ways, and I talk about that in the article, to speed it up so that they don't stand uh, so much in the way of this massive uh, program of renewable construction that we need. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And early on, at least some of the individual uh, representatives of environmental groups were supportive of NEPA reforms, uh, at least as a general matter, because of the uh, potential adverse effect on some of the kinds of uh, green infrastructure projects that, that Mike is, is talking about. Ultimately, however, um, all the national environmental groups uh, denounced the, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, proposed reforms as, quote, gutting the statute. Uh, and I think that illustrates how difficult it is once uh, uh, entitlements or particularly environmental rights have been, have been uh, uh, given out or recognized, how difficult it is to, 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 uh, uh, to, to change them. But it remains to be seen whether or not we will eventually be able to uh, uh, do some of those projects. I, I like, like Michael, agree on the advantages of doing what are called programmatic environmental impact statements, which are generic statements that consider a whole range of projects. And then what you have to do on the EISs for individual projects is essentially bring them down by talking about uh, the specific aspects of a particular project. But I, I do think that's, that's, something that's good. And that's something that was done quite extensively in the Obama administration. I don't want to convey the uh, false impression that the only um, administration that's been concerned about um, NEPA and uh, getting rid of uh, delays that are, that are uh, adversely affecting infrastructure projects is the Trump administration. I think they've, they've tried to do more than previous administrations, but there were a number of reform proposals uh, under Obama as well. A question from the audience that's submitted anonymously. He or she asks, what role can the private sector, like HRAE uh, building standards and the LEED building standard and others, play in curbing emissions and reducing cumulative impact? I guess I'd add to that in the context of this particular discussion of NEPA. To what extent do those sorts of third-party standards become the presumptive rules of the road for purposes of, of NEPA analysis in these projects? I think they're very useful. I think that if there are professional standards for how to make a very energy efficient building as they are, then the EIS can say, I'm, I, this is built to the lead gold standard. And, and that says a lot. Now, that's not necessarily the end of the analysis, but I think it can really accomplish a lot and can give a lot more uh, credibility to the, to the project and to the EIS. Yeah, I think uh, private um, uh, initiatives and private standards are very important, particularly with regard to uh, climate change. There's an excellent book about that um, by Mike Vandenberg, who teaches at uh, uh, Vanderbilt Law School and a, and a co-author, uh, about all of the private initiatives on, uh, on, on, on climate change. So I think it's a mistake to think about um, human reactions to uh, climate change solely in terms of mandatory government programs. There's an awful lot that's going on that is so-called voluntary. Next question comes from Joe Carbone, and he writes, it seems as though the revised CEQ regulations add documents requirements for EISs for both draft and final EISs. 
for those who aren't familiar, the environmental impact statement, an EIS, usually goes through several iterations. The agency or its consultant will publish a draft version that people will comment on and, and criticize, challenge, and then the agency will final, finalize the process with its final EIS. Uh, Joe writes, with more emphasis on scoping, there is now a need for tracking comments and commenters during scoping. Uh, so that with Don's emphasis on administrative remedies, we know who has said what. I'm now paraphrasing the question. Do you see this process as potentially taking longer under these regulations? Don, are you adding more complication to the, the NEPA process by a call no, for exhaustion of remedies? You know, I don't think so. I think that the, all of that documentation under the scoping process uh, takes place today anyway. The difficulty is why spend a lot of time getting uh, suggestions on how to scope the process if people don't come for if people don't have to come forward with their suggestions at that point. And I think in general, if they do come forward with their suggestions, taking into account Mike, Mike Gerard's good good point that there may be some things that are not not foreseeable. But I I, I actually don't agree with the suggestion that this would somehow slow down the process or have uh, have have more red tape. But I think it would just make the scoping process count. I think it's a good idea to get everybody's suggestions as to what we ought to talk about in an in a in a in an EIS. Um, but but uh, I don't I don't agree with the premise of the question. Uh, let me just say that that one area where I am less enthused about the exhaustion uh, issue as it has been posed is that sometimes these are projects that are in low-income and minority communities that don't have the resources to jump on a uh, a proposed scope for an EIS and put in comments early. And that's why I think that uh, these efforts need to be coupled with enhanced public participation and providing uh, uh, resources and capacity so that these uh, communities that do not currently have the resources to deal with a complicated NEPA process are, uh, are, 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 are empowered to really participate meaningfully so that they can put in the comments. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. And one of the unintended consequences of some of the public participation requirements, including uh, in, the, uh, in, in the NEPA process, uh, is that uh, underrepresented communities are, are less able to use some of these tools than, uh, than wealthier communities. But I think it's also hard for um, people today to uh, understand what a, what, a, what a huge change the National Environmental Policy Act has made in terms of informing the, the public about proposed projects. I grew up in a, a medium-sized town in southern Indiana called Evansville, Indiana, which is located on the Ohio River. And the only way we would know that the Corps of Engineers was planning to uh, build new locks or construct uh, projects in the Ohio River is when we would see the cranes out there beginning to do it. And I think that by having at least some opportunities for public notice and, and comment, we've improved the process. I do agree with Mike that we need to do a better job of making sure groups are represented. But I, I don't think that's a reason to be against the process. I think it's a reason to try to empower communities to be better able to participate in the process. Maybe I'll throw in a sort of an added question of my own on this theme. I mean, I understand on the one hand, the need to put limits on the, the number of issues, at least when they can be erased and so on. But the NEPA process itself, as any infrastructure project, it takes a long time. The agency review in general takes a long time. And by the end of the process and by the end of judicial review after the agency process, a lot of information can, can, can be brought in or can arise, either because the facts have changed, maybe other projects are now arising in a, in a similar industry or a similar area. We don't stop learning. Uh, the question is, how do we put limits on what we what we're capable of learning. And above all else, NEPA was supposed to, again, bring forward information about the eventual uh, impacts of the project. So it seems conceptually hard to draw an arbitrary line somewhere. This, this, this is sort of an unavoidable puzzle, I suppose. It reminds me of that scientific principle. I'm no scientist, so I'll get it wrong, but how measuring something will affect the thing itself or observing something will affect the thing itself. That seems to me one of the core challenges in NEPA. Is there any way out of this problem? 
Well, I think that really is the core problem that the recent amendments are attempting to address. If there's significant new information that arises, we do we do have a process for doing supplemental environmental impact statements. So to to update the environmental uh, statement, but the, I think the question is, how do you how do you draw the line, and how do you make sure that the uh, the game is worth the candle? Um, and I think that's the 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 problem that the that the uh, rule changes are really struggling to, uh, to, to, to to cope with. And I think that the proposed approach of presumptive limits on time and presumptive limits on uh, the, the length of environmental impact statements, as well as the length of the appendices, I don't agree with Mike Gerard that this will just push things into the appendices because there are, there are limits on those too. I think that's an attempt to try to do what other countries have done and establish some uh, presumptive limits that will create incentives for people to focus on the big issues. Um, you know, I, I think this is very analogous to the problem of uh, discovery abuse. For a, for a long time, discovery and litigation would go on would go on forever. And then judges started setting time limits and saying, look, you can discover anything you want, but, you know, we're going to go to trial, you know, on a certain on a certain date. And then that creates incentives for people to prioritize the issues that are most important rather than having a, a process which can be a, a gotcha process um, in which you can stop the whole project because some relatively small point was not uh, was not sufficiently addressed. The, the only thing I want to add is that NEPA is often blamed for delays that aren't mostly NEPA's fault. We hear about six-year or 10-year NEPA processes, but often what was really going on is they were redesigning the project or finding a new place for it, or they decided that a different technology was better, or they couldn't get the financing. Very often, the uh, long delays in the process really aren't because it took that long to write and rewrite the EIS. It was because lots of other outside things were happening that slowed things down. Yeah, I mean, I think both of those things are true. Um, and remember, we're really only talking here about long delays for about 10% of projects that are at the upper end of significance and, and uh, complexity. The two years, not 10 years, was was criticized uh, by, by some of its critics um, as not being sufficiently empirical because the, the average for major projects was about 4.5 years rather than, uh, than 10. But 4.5 years is, is still, you know, much too long, and it results in, in a, a very significant increase in costs as well as other things, uh, as well as other things changing. So I, I think that um, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a laudable attempt to try to uh, simplify and speed up the process by getting some of the incentives right. Whether or not it will ultimately be determined uh, to be legal, I think, remains to be seen. And if you have leadership that is really pushing the process well, it can go very quickly. I was heavily involved in the EIS for the reconstruction of the World Trade Center site after 9-11. And uh, Governor George Pataki of New York really wanted that to move forward. And we did the whole EIS from soup to nuts, from, from notice of intent to record of decision in a little over a year. It can really happen quickly if it's being driven. Yeah, now, I, I do I also worked on such a project, uh, which was the design of the downtown arena in in Washington D.C., where the, uh, the the person who was going to going to uh, build it basically said, "You either get this done in a year, or I'm going to move to the move to the suburbs." And that project was designed to eliminate uh, significant environmental issues, so we could do an, an EA and get it done uh, get it done within a get it done within a year. So, yeah, it is possible to do that. I just want to mention one one thing, though, that delays things, and that is some some agencies, such as the Corps of Engineers, uh, had a policy in the past of not even beginning to consider their consideration until all the other agencies had, had done what they were going to do. And oftentimes the analysis where you had multiple agencies uh, was was done in sequence rather than all at the same time. And one of the things that the Trump proposals do is require the appointment of a lead agency and coordination among agencies. So there, there is some deadweight loss in the system. I agree with, uh, with, with, with Mike 
Um, and one of the other points, uh, we had some programs about infrastructure at, at Covington, and um, w one of the people from, uh, the from the National Gas Association said, hey, we don't run into these long delays at the state level, uh, which I found very interesting. And basically her point was that where you have a governor like Governor Pataki that's really pushing a project, all of the actors and state agencies uh, typically kind of come together and, and get it done. There's much more independence, as you know, Mike, between the federal agencies at the, uh, uh, at, at the, at the, at the federal level. And sometimes that results in federal agencies wanting to save their resources, even at the cost of uh, delaying projects. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for the discussion. So I want to, first of all, thank Don and Mike for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. We've mentioned a few papers along the way. I'm going to say their titles one more time, just for those who are listening in, especially those who listen to the podcast afterwards. And we'll link them on the webpage for this event on the Gray Center's site. The paper that Don mentioned at Covington and Burling was titled CEQ Finals NEPA Rule Updating Regulations. It's from July of, of 2020. And Mike mentioned his paper at Columbia titled Legal Pathways for a Massive Increase in Utility Scale Renewable Generation Capacity. In addition to those, the Gray Center uh, hosted another paper on this subject a couple of years ago at a conference on licenses and permitting reform. It's by James Coleman of Southern Methodist University. It's available on our working paper series, and it was published in the Ohio State Law Journal. It was titled Pipelines and Power Lines Building the energy transport future. And so I'd encourage people to look that up as well. Most of all, I want to thank all of you for joining us today. Now, in the months to come, as COVID-19 continues to limit our ability to have in-person conferences the way we traditionally do, we have plans to offer a variety of podcasts and webinars and other events uh, in these online formats to continue to explore new and timeless questions of administration. So please keep an eye on our website, subscribe to our email newsletter if you haven't already, and stay tuned for future announcements. Until next time, thanks for joining us here at the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. <laughs>